Well, good morning, everybody. Everybody doing well? Pretty good? You're going to have to put on some smiles for today because I, I think your brains are going to feel like they're upside down, so I, I apologize in advance for it. So uh, for those of you who are new with us, my name is Nathan, and we want to obviously welcome you to Pierce Point. Um, we are jumping into the second leg of a series that I, uh, that I started several months back. Uh, and the series is on the book of Genesis. We're trying to look at the book of Genesis through a lens that, that uh, affords us, through a lens that affords us the opportunity to answer people that are very skeptical of the scriptures, skeptical of the Christian faith, uh, skeptical of religion in general. Right? And, and one of the things that I think we need to do a better job of as Christians is, is understand how to uh, defend our positions how our positions came to be. I think that's an important one. Uh, I also think it's important that we uh, have the ability to listen to people's opinions. Even if they were to look at you and say, I believe this idea of God is just a giant joke and a fairy tale. You don't, you don't have to get up in arms and, you know, it, you know try to hurt them, right? Uh, which you shouldn't do anyway as a Christian. Um, but, you know, maybe you didn't know that. So anyway, so... So we began this, this, uh, this time in Genesis, and we're going we're gonna to pick up on that. I want to share with you just a brief thing. Somebody asked me the other day, they said, you know, so what was, the, what was this kind of caveat through unity and all this talk of Ephesians? Um, it, was, it really served as an awesome time for um, Steph, who's my co-writer and worker on this stuff, uh, to work through all these ideas because we're constantly trying to challenge our brains and our, and our ideas that we're working through. And so, so it gave us time to formulate the second leg and then we'll work through the third leg. And in that third leg, you're going to hear from different, um, different people in that. You'll, you'll be hearing from Jacob Dolezal and, and I'll be forcing Barney to preach and I love that. So it's really awesome. And I'll, I'll be inviting Dwayne. He's just a, a, an awesome addition to this group. And so it'll be, it'll be a lot of fun, right, for that. So we're going to jump into the second leg, but I want to do a recap on where we were in Genesis 1 and 2 and what was the purpose of Genesis 1 and 2. Um, if, if you get nothing out of those sermons or anything today, I want you to understand that Genesis 1 and 2 is communicating this beautiful truth about God, and not just any God, but Yahweh God, uh, that, that God is a God of order. And that when God creates and all the language that he uses and all the things that we read in Genesis communicate that God brings order out of chaos. Okay? God brings order out of chaos. Um, he, is a, he is one who, who creates the cosmos. He creates what uh, John Walton would call the functionaries of the world. And then he also gives them their function. So he, he creates the sun and he says... Here's your purpose, right? He creates the moon and the stars. He creates the heavens and the earth. He creates you and I and says, here's your purpose, okay? So, so God is a God of order, and we learned that he creates all of this, uh, all of this stuff. We also learned who is writing uh, Genesis, right? And so if, if Moses, and I believe this to be true, right? If Moses is writing Genesis, we have to realize that um, Moses is writing this after the delivery of 
Israel out of captivity, and whether that's an understanding of Moses came to the ideas and communicated through word of mouth, and this all got codified and written down much later after the Babylonian exile, or if it was right after the Egyptian uh, captivity. Uh, Either way, Moses is the one writing this, and Moses is telling the people uh, in a way Uh, contrary to all the creation myths of the world that they lived in, remember, all of these creation myths that were present were present and well-steeped, right? These people were well-steeped in them. And Moses comes along and says, it's not Baal, it's not any other God, it's actually Yahweh who is creator of all things. And then he goes even further and says, he's not just creator of all things, he is king over everything, and this little planet that we're on is his footstool. Right, So there is no captivity you would ever enter as people where you should feel that your, your king is not in control. And that is a peace to these people. Right? They, they have been in captivity. They're scratching their head going, where's Yahweh now? Right? And he is a God who is not only in control, but he has created everything that we see and he's brought it all into a particular order created the functionaries, and given them their function, right? So, so God is doing this, but it's not just any God again. Chapter 1 of Genesis talks Elohim all the time, and then chapter 2 introduces us to Yahweh Elohim. So it's, it's Yahweh who is the creator of the universe. So this obviously is borne out in, uh, bore out in, the, in the text. It's also, uh, it's also evident that, it, uh, that Yahweh is who he is in the way the writer drafts the message. So there's, there's this temple language that we talked about in that first leg of the series. And that temple language is important. I'll recap it really quick. God creates the earth. This is the outer court. God creates a garden. Uh, God creates Eden. This is an inner court. And then God plants a garden in the east of Eden. These are three separate things, right? And so this becomes the holy of holies. This becomes a, 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 a sanctuary, if you will. And scholars understand that this is where heaven meets earth, right? This is this touching point where heaven meets earth. And in the midst of that, we also know that we have the, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We also talked about the different ways people view uh, the, the scriptures, and that was through, the, through a lens of uh, uh, literal views and figurative views. So when we're looking at the text of Scripture, we have to understand that there are scholars who view all of Genesis as this kind of figurative language that's communicating a bigger point. So it would be more like what C.S. Lewis says, which is a true myth, okay? Um, You have to understand myth in its proper sense if you're going to get that phrase, but a true myth... And, or you have the literal version, which is there's literal seven days, there's literal this, there's literal that. Okay? But what we know is there's evidence for all of these different viewpoints. There is biblical evidence, textual evidence for these things. That doesn't mean one view is not more probable than the other. Okay? So when we start talking about ideas, we have to start weighing probability. We have to start saying that may be possible, but it's highly unlikely. Okay, and, and here's why we say this. So, so just remember that. We, we, uh, we talked about that literal thing, and I, that literal versus figurative concept, and I shared with you a quote from Jason Lyles, who is a, a contributor, some sort of colleague, 
with the uh, Creation Museum and Ken Ham's ministry, Answers in Genesis. And um, Jason Lyle says something where he says, uh, he says, if God, he's arguing for the, the literal nature of Genesis 1, and he's arguing about seven literal days and all this stuff, and he says, if God can't get Genesis right, uh, then how do we know God gets eternal life right? But I want you to know that that is a... Um, that's a stupid argument, and I mean stupid for a reason, um, because what it does is it intentionally tries to gaslight the, the people that hear it. And what it is, is if you think this crazy way, you can't trust anything in the Bible, so you must be crazy, right? But that's crazy, okay? That's crazy. Because the answer to if God can't get Genesis right or if we don't take Genesis serious, how can we take eternal life serious? The answer is we do take God serious. We don't take your interpretation serious. And that is where the fighting in Christian circles comes. The fighting comes when one says, but I see it this way, and the other says, but I see it that way, and they go, and you have no reason to see it that way, so burn in hell, right? Like, it's just really bad, okay? <laughs> Hopefully you're not saying that to your, to your colleagues, but anyway, so it gets really sticky in this, right? So we have to deal with uh, literal, figurative, and it comes down to a philosophy of interpretation. So let me do a little trial run on philosophy interpretation of literal, figurative, and let's talk about Adam and Eve for a second. There are those, how many of you know, there are those who believe Adam and Eve to be figurative characters. They're not real. Did you know that? Or were you brought up in Sunday school and you're like, nope. Adam is the only guy we're going to see in heaven without a belly button. How many of you heard that nonsense, right? Like, right? Or Adam's missing a rib or some, what, what the heck ever. It doesn't even matter, right? So the point, the point is, is that there's a, there's a group of people that believe that Adam and Eve are figurative. And then there are are a group of people, myself included, that believe them to be literal people, okay? Now, there's all kinds of reasons why these people believe this stuff, and so we need to think through why they believe it, okay? Uh, here's the first thing that I would say about that. If Adam and Eve were figurative characters and not literal characters, would it change the meaning of the Bible or the truthfulness of the Bible? The answer, contrary to what you think, is no. Wouldn't change a dang thing. How many of you know that the story of the prodigal son is a fake story? Does it change the truth of what Jesus said? It does not. It does not. Now, I don't believe that it's a fake story, okay? But I'm going to give you reasons why I don't believe it's a fake story, okay? And, and this should give you reasons why you can talk to other people about these things. Just because something is figurative, though, doesn't mean there's not truth in it. Okay, so even if Adam and Eve are just symbols of humanity or something like this, it doesn't change the fact that God is the orderer of the cosmos. That's awesome. But here's why I think we have to put that argument a little bit over here on a shelf and we need and still listen to the people who hold it and at the same time assert, well, this is why I assert the idea I have. Unlike the prodigal son, Nobody after Jesus gives this story references the prodigal son as a real character. Nobody after the story is done or before the story is done traces the prodigal son's lineage back to something. Okay? Do you, you understand that? Which, which means something very important in the reader's mind, and that is they didn't take him literally, but they took him seriously. That's important. They don't trace the lineage of the father or the older brother. We don't even know their names. Okay? So therefore, the whole story is, is fake or made up, but it pro provides a point. 
Adam and Eve, however, are traced back. They not only land in the lineage of, of the Bible, and by the way, if they land in the lineage, and Abraham, who we know is a real character, is in the lineage, and then it goes back to Adam, who we just randomly say is not real, that's strange in your interpretation. Do you see why that would be strange? So, so the point, I'm just giving you probability. I'm giving you a most probable situation. So Adam and Eve show up in the lineage, and then the authors of the Bible reference them as real people, right? Over and over and over. This is really important. And Jesus is not considered the second human. He's the second Adam, right? He is the true Adam. He's, he's the right one, okay? So my point is that there are literal ways to interpret things. There's figurative ways to interpret things. And we have to actually have a real case for why we would say, well, here's why I think that that's real. Last case for Adam and Eve is actually scientific. Believe it or not, science is not opposed to you. Um, they might, scientists might be, <laughs> right? But science is not opposed to you. And that is that scientists and science has discovered that man has a common ancestor. That's fascinating to me. And it's not a monkey, just in case you were wondering, right? Right? It's not a monkey. I mean, some people I know. <laughs> anyway, okay. So, so the point is, it's not a monkey, right? And so you have a common ancestor. And so even science seems to shadow this idea. Very important stuff. So today, what we're going to do is God creates this thing in order, and yet the problem is, is it doesn't take long, and we throw it into disorder. So the the, the second leg of this series is titled "Disorder, uh, Disorder and Man." Okay, right there, disorder and man. Okay, and we're going to begin. Uh, we're going to begin this by looking at that disorder, which is what most scholars and theologians would refer to as the fall. One of the most amazing aspects of order and consequently disorder that is created, uh, that, that is broken, is actually the order between men and women. This is important, and I believe that it is uh, good for you guys to hear. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to start at verse 26, and the, the scriptures are going to be on the screen, but I do encourage you to follow along in your Bible because you're going to want to write notes or you're going to highlight things as we go. So let's start with verses 26 through 31. That's, that's the end of chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Even creepy things are our responsibility, right? So God says, let us make man in our image. And the way we understand this, is not only is um, three who's and one what, so he is community even in himself, but God also has this divine counsel that the scripture talks about. And so, so God has said, let, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. We know what that means and what that doesn't mean. We don't share attributes with God. Right? I don't have a beard because God has a beard. And you know why that's important? Because all you women <laughs> don't need beards. Anyway, so, so, so we, don't, we don't share that. We also don't share traits with God in some of these respects. I'm not omniscient. I wish I was, right? Um, uh, I am not omnipresent. I'm not sure I wish I was that. But anyway, so I'm not, we're not these things, okay? And so we are created in God's image. That meant what the next line says, which is to rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky. There's a function that we carry out. 
We are kings and we are priests. That's what the scripture tells. There's kingly language in Genesis and there's priestly language in this temple structure. Verse 27 goes on. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And this is important, guys. Male and female, he created them, right? God blessed them. Now follow this. And God said to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, but only to men subdue it. That's not what it says, right? And it doesn't matter what people like to make this try to say. The the reality is the command, the whole idea is communicated to all of humanity. Be fruitful and multiply. That requires both, amen? Amen. And, And fill the earth. That's the responsibility of that. And subdue it. It didn't take a break, so that's part of it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So this is our responsibility. Kings and priests. Kings and queens, whatever. So verse 29. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed in it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the, of the earth, uh, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. Now, in the coming weeks, we're going to talk about whether or not God made us all vegetarians, okay? Because that, it's just an interesting thing, okay? And we'll, we'll talk more about that. So I'm not skipping over it for any of you guys who are, who are assessing my uh, progress today. Verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So God does not step back until Eve is on the scene. God does not step back and see that everything is very good until this happens. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Okay, let's roll over to chapter 2 and we're going to start at verse 7. So chapter 1 and chapter 2 are complements to one another. They're not fighting each other, right? So you have an overview, you have a zoom in of specific details. And I want to draw your attention to some some different language that occurs here. Verse 7, then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden and there he placed the man whom he had formed. So what just happened? What just happened? Number one, God's doing the planting. That's pretty awesome. I never thought about God as setting up a garden. But right, it says God plants the garden towards the east. So we have the world, we have Eden, and then we have in the east of Eden, the garden of Eden, right? Something separate. God plants this garden and then what does he do? He places the man in the garden. So where is the man originally created? Outside of the garden. So when we understand this is temple language, and the garden is the holy of holies, and God places the man in it, what has he just done with the man? He sanctified him. He's made him holy. He's given him a responsibility and a place from which to do it. And by the way, the Holy of Holies is this place from which God meets with man. Heaven and earth touch. Okay? So this is, this is just a beautiful idea. Okay? So it goes on, and it says that he, the Lord God planted a garden in the east of Eden, and he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, world, Eden, garden, 
tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I'm going to share with you guys some ideas that I want you to ponder. I want you to think of. I want you to challenge because this is really, really crazy and cool stuff. Let's skip on down to verse 15. Genesis 2.15 says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Now this is important because there's a distinction in the language here. He does not say, I'm going to put you in the garden to rule and reign yet. He also doesn't say, I put you in the garden, be fruitful and multiply. There's no Eve yet. There's literally priest language here. And that is that God has put Adam in the garden to cultivate and keep it. Make sure that you're do- keeping it in order, okay? The ruling and reigning, the being fruitful and subduing hasn't showed up yet because Eve isn't here, okay? Do you understand the distinction in those language? Okay, verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now, this is really important stuff here. Because what God is actually getting at is not that the day they eat it, they keel over. We know that based on the story. And the devil knows that they actually somewhat think that. So he tries to play with them a little bit. Right? He still tells them the truth. It's just, what do you mean by dead? Right? What do you mean by death? What God is talking about here is a verdict that will be put on mankind. And it will happen to Adam. And it will happen to Eve. In the day they eat it, surely this death sentence will begin. And you will begin to deteriorate and everything will fall away. And we understand from the story, it's because God removes from them the tree of life. They can't access this tree. So verse 17, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you, will not, you shall not eat from it, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Okay, now let's read verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now, what does this actually mean? It's actually a helper that corresponds to him. God, say this with me, church, I'll say it first and you say it with me. God didn't make women as the help. Do you understand? So say it with me. God didn't make women as the help. There's not slaves sitting in the kitchen making you freaking sandwiches, okay? I mean, that's cool. If you want to make a sandwich, that's great, right? Jerry Clust. Anyway, so, but that is not, that is not what it is. There is a helper that is corresponding to. You too, Barney. You too. You better get your act right, okay? So there is this idea of corresponding to. Why corresponding to? There's this huge job. And the huge job is be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. You got a lot to do, amen? And you're going to need a corresponding helper for this purpose. But God looks at this and says, it's not good for man to be alone. Do you think that God in that moment was like, well, crap, I should have made him a helper. I forgot that part. Do you think that that's what happened? Because it's not what happened. And it's not what happened because we have to understand how Adam's created. And this is really important for you guys. Adam is created as a lifelong learner. And so are you. Okay, we'll see it in just a second. 
Verse 19, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. Verse 20, the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Not found a helper suitable for Adam. So first of all, Adam is given this really interesting job, right, um, of, of naming, of tending to the garden right away until Eve shows up, and then the subduing and all the other stuff can start. One of the most, uh, one of the most important things about this, again, I, I just said it, is that Adam is a lifelong learner, and so his learning is akin to uh, progressive sanctification. Right? It's, his learning is akin to developing and going, all, going in and all this stuff, right? So Adam is, Adam is doing this, so all this before Eve, right? And so um, he's a lifelong learner, and God sends him out to name these animals, to, to kind of identify, what he's doing is identifying their functions and declaring that purpose, Okay. Why is this important? Well, in many other ancient Near Eastern myths, the, the wording is as follows. It is that, it is that uh, before things had a function or their destinies were set for them. This is common in ancient Near Eastern myths. And God's story comes in and says, I gave the job to Adam to give them their destiny and their purpose. Okay? Naming takes on a very different meaning in the Bible. Adam is not jumping out, finding a cow, and saying, your name's Jerry. Okay? He didn't find a giraffe and say, ooh, there's Susie. She's awesome. Okay? That's not what's happening. It's a declaration of purpose. And then there's this bigger thing that happens with, with Adam's function, too. And that is, God makes Adam and calls him man. Adam names the beasts and the birds, and the sea creatures, and all that stuff. And then there is, Adam can't find a helper. Adam is observing his world. Adam, here's the way you might look at it. Adam is the first scientist. What do I mean by that? Adam is observing the world around him, and he's identifying things. He's putting names to things. That's what he's doing. That's what scientists do, right? So he's doing all this stuff, and he's declaring these things, as he's doing it, he's going, corresponding part, corresponding part, corresponding part. Where's mine? That's what he's doing, okay? No helper is found for him. And that's not because God couldn't find one, okay? And it's not because he experimented, okay? I know that that's a weird image, but, uh, right? So he couldn't find a, su a helper suitable for him, right? So he's asking God as he's naming all these things and declaring there's purpose. And when God makes Eve for him, who names Eve? Adam does. This is a very interesting thing. Because she is a helper that is corresponding to Adam. But Adam is responsible for declaring her purpose and declaring her destiny. He is the one who says, you are woman because you were taken from man. You are Eve because you were the mother of all living. That's a fascinating thing. I also think on a practical note, this speaks to husbands, it speaks to men in, by way of encouragement that says your responsibility is constantly to speak purpose into your wife. It is not to speak commands into her because she's the help. 
There's a difference. Okay, Tina. Okay, okay, okay. It's enough. Enough, so enough. Right there. Okay. The amens just randomly got louder. Anyway, right? It does not have anything to do with hierarchy, guys. Hierarchy is real. It has nothing to do with who's head over who. All that's real. The Bible says it. It's fine. But what we've done with it is mutilated it and turned it into real chaos, okay? And so we're going to get into more of that as we look at this. But this is something that gets destroyed in the fall. This is something that get, gets disordered. And so Adam is responsible for this, and he names Eve, and he puts this whole thing out there. Um, but the, the key thing that I want you to know about his learning is that God is okay with his learning. God is okay with him progressing and growing in righteousness and all of these things. Actually, we see this in Jesus when he comes on the scene as God incarnate. Jesus himself is said to grow in righteousness. Why? We're like, Jesus, God, what's going on here? It's okay. That has nothing to do with sin. How many of you are learning? How many of you will learn till the day you take your last breath? You better. You better. Because it, it's important. We were built this way, right? So God isn't clueless to Adam's need. He actually knows what's going on. But he sends Adam out to figure this whole thing out, right? And so he kind of is, is testing in some way Adam's response, Adam's observational skills, Adam's whatever, right? So he's looking at the world. And, and so he then sees that he doesn't have a corresponding part. And he says, uh, you know, I've got nothing. And God gives him a corresponding part, which is Eve. But for what purpose? That corresponding purpose is to do everything that he sees everything else doing. He can't be fruitful and multiply. He can't make babies by himself. And he sure can't order all of this stuff together. So there's theories out there that talk about Adam being the declarer of things and Eve being the, the listener. This is what forms our views of things like Mother Earth and, and how all of, uh, all of the Earth's communication seems to be feminine in some capacity. I know some of that stuff's like, what the flip is he talking about? But anyway, so there's all these things. And what, what it does look like as we play all this stuff out is that man required a feedback loop. Right? He required somebody to, to communicate with him and he with her. Right? And so God, God designed this this way. And so Adam discovers it. So the question then presents, so there's this order and there's this amazing thing, system that God created. And then we all know something goes wrong. But the question is, what goes wrong in the garden? What goes wrong? I asked a couple of people this week, I, I Challenge them to give me some questions that they either have about Genesis 3 or, or maybe even all of Genesis. Um, questions about it or questions that they've received, questions that skeptics in their life uh, throw out there. And a couple of those questions are fascinating questions. One of those questions uh, was, was the idea of, uh, does God really condemn the whole world because two people accidentally ate an apple? Right? Well, the answer is it wasn't an apple. No, there's more to the answer, okay? And I'm going to get to that in just a second, right? Does God really condemn people because they disobeyed and ate a fruit? No. There's way more going on here. But unless we see the text of Scripture the way we need to see it, which is through lenses that are far different from our own, we will get confused. And then we'll look at God and say, you're just an unfair God, and you just do weird things. Let me read you a quote from... Uh, uh, 
an intellectual scholar and thinker, uh, Matthew Peugeot, who, who does a great job of this. He says, unlike modern science, traditional cosmology did not attempt to describe reality in terms of atoms, energy, and mechanical causality. Instead, most ancient cultures perceived the world in terms of spiritual principles, such as angels, demons, and mysterious sea monsters at the edge of the world. So before attempting to interpret a book like Genesis, it is important to understand why our current worldview is so different from that of the past, okay? And so he goes on to give this illustration that says a spiritual perspective looks at the text of Scripture and asks the question, what does it mean and what truth does it embody? Those two questions are why even if Adam and Eve were figurative characters, it doesn't change the truth. Because spiritual perspectives ask the question, what does it mean and what truth does it embody? But we're all stuck in this modern scientism lens, not scientific, scientism lens, that is a material perspective that asks the question, how does it work and what materials is it made of? And while we're doing that, we're missing the whole freaking meaning. We're just missing everything. We don't know what's going on. Now, do I think that there is no value in those questions? Heavens no. I think it's good in some sense to be material in our thinking. But we have to start asking about meaning inside of all of this, right? And so, so what goes wrong in the garden? Did they just eat a, a, a fruit and everybody gets condemned? No, it's what happened in that situation, which we're going to talk about in a second. Another question was, why the heck did God put the tree there in the first place? How many of you think about that one? You're like, Lord, how about you remove it? We're all fine. Guess what? The simple answer of, well, God gave you free will and just wants to give you a choice is actually not sufficient. You do have a free will and you do need to make a choice, but that's not, that's not the point of it. You have to remember who's writing the story again. Who wrote Genesis? Moses wrote Genesis. What was Moses responsible for? This is the beauty of God's story. It is so unbelievably large and intricate when you see all these weird little connections and details you just sit there and you praise him okay so Moses wrote it what was Moses also responsible for he went to the top of the mountain received the ten commandments from God gave and got instruction for building the ark of the covenant as well to hold those tablets as well as the tabernacle and he comes down, and Moses crafts this whole language with tabernacle language, with Ark of the Covenant language, with all of these sacred things and laws. The Ten Commandments are the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots. What does that sound a lot like? Good and evil, doesn't it? This is what you do, this is what you don't do. God gives Moses this construction of an of a Ark of the Covenant. Where does the Ark of the Covenant get put in the tabernacle? In the center of the Holy of Holies. And what are you not allowed to do with the Ark of the Covenant? Touch it. Guess what Eve says when the devil tempts her? Says, you can't eat from it or even touch it. If you don't think that's connected, you're not reading well enough. You're not reading well enough. It's not because Eve was adding rules to rules to keep other rules. She wasn't a Pharisee. And by the way, that didn't happen for thousands of years. Right? God gave them the rules. They didn't start off with the rules and go, we need to add more. That'd be absurd, right? So she's not doing that. There's a, there's a language here, and Moses seems to be wanting it read into it. I don't know why all the time, but it's fascinating, okay? So 
So we have, we have why did God put the, the tree there in the first place? Was there really a talking snake? How many of you like that one, right? I think it's awesome. I think you should talk to snake. No, I, <laughs> all right. Anyway, is there a talking snake? A really important question. Why does the snake only talk to Eve? It's interesting because it seems to fit with this feedback loop piece. Adam declares, Eve hears. I don't know. Just interesting theories and thoughts to keep in our mind. And some of you look at this and go, gosh, Nathan, you are making this way too complicated. And I am looking at you and saying, you have read this too simply for far too long. Too simply. But Nathan, can't we just stop it? God created everything and he's an ordering God and we, bro we broke it and he wants to restore it. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. It's beautiful. It can be that shallow. It, I, I'm not saying you're shallow. I'm saying it can be in-depth wording. It can be shallow. But the story is so deep that we would all drown in it, right, if we were totally thrown into all of this. But to me, the story is so unbelievably beautiful. So let's look at some of this as we work through it. Genesis chapter 3. Let's start at verse 1. Walk it through with me, guys. We'll, we'll take a little bit of time. I'll get as far as I can. I'm already, I'm already pushing it. Anyway. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman. Now let's stop for a second. You're like, dang it, Nathan, get somewhere. I am. I promise you, I'm getting somewhere. The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. What does that mean? He's more crafty. Now, we all look at it and we say the serpent is the devil, right? Right? He is the Satan, and therefore, he's just, you know, whatever. But you've you got to be careful with that language. Because if the idea is just demonic possession, then he is more possessed than the other beasts of the field. Do you see what that's saying, right? It's interesting. What does it mean for the serpent to be crafty? There are theories out there that would say something like the, the serpent was displeased with Adam's declaration of who it was, not that it isn't influenced by the devil, but that it is displeased with this and it responds with, I'm going to get back at Adam. That's possible. Now, some of you look at this and say, that's impossible because there's not sin yet, but that's where we're wrong again. Do you know what it do you know what it requires or implies or necessitates to say that there is a tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Evil already exists. Okay? This is not hard. This is like, hello, right? Do you know what would have to be the case if the serpent is in fact the devil? What would have to be the case? Evil has to exist. The fall in heaven has to have occurred. Okay? All of this is true. All of this is true. Okay. So, so we have this really crazy breakdown. And the serpent was more crafty than the beasts of the field and the, that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Now he knows that that's, well, there's a possibility he doesn't know what God said. Okay? But let's just say he does. Well, that's not what God said, is it? It's not what God said. Everything is actually yours. And it's awesome. It looks good for food, and it's, and it's tasty, right? So this is really good. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the 
middle of the garden. Oh, there's that Ark of the Covenant thing. It's very interesting. God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. See, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this is just a theory, so and I've got a lot behind it if you ever want to talk about it. The theory is that God never intended for us, and it goes to answering the question of why did he put the tree there in the first place. God never intended us not to know good from evil. He intended us to trust him in it. And back to Adam being a lifelong learner, it seems as though God's plan was, I will teach you. You trust me. He gave the law on Mount Sinai. He gave this thing that would absolutely kill them if they touched it. He gave all of these things. But God's going, you trust me. What was the real problem in the garden? We didn't trust God. Do you see the problem? It's really that we don't trust God. It's not an apple, right? It's not just, oops, I ate that fruit and shouldn't have done it, okay? There is a lack of trust, but there's even more to that story. So the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees in the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And I'm asking the question, what is Moses' insertion in here? What is Moses, inspired by God, saying to us? Very important stuff, right? Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. I like that he might say it that way. Anyway, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. How many of you think that the devil is lying to them right there? He's not. Skip down. All the way down to verse 22. The Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he, we, he might stretch his hand out and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. God has no problem telling you that he wants you to trust in him and not to do this on your own. Because godness without him, you can't bear it. You can't bear it. The devil is not lying directly to them, okay? So please understand that. So he says... Back at it. What verse were we at? Sorry, guys. Yes. The tree. Yep, yep, yep. Surely you will not die. For God knows in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. I love this line, guys. And she gave it also to her husband with her and he ate. You're tracking with me, right? Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Now, they, they did wrong. They, they have not trusted God and they both were complicit in this situation. But we need to go back to hierarchy. We need to go back to understanding what the scripture says. And we're going to see it in just a second. Because I'm going to go a little bit longer today if you guys are okay. Ten more minutes. We're going to look at the curse and find out what is actually happening. And then we're going to see the hierarchy. We're going to see the, the, distortion, the, the disorder that's created. Um, and and it'll, it'll make some sense. Okay, let's start at verse 
start at verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? You think God really wondered? What is he doing? He's giving Adam an opportunity to say what is going on, right? Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And God said, who told you you were naked? Do you think he wondered that too? Nope. Do you think he wondered this? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Yes, you dunce, right? That's exactly what you did, right? Okay, verse 12 and 13. The man said, the woman you gave me. Husbands, seriously. Your, the, your problem has started in the garden, for goodness sakes, right? That woman, that woman, I'm talking to you, Barney. Anyway, okay, so anyway. Oh, gosh. Anyway. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the devil made me do it. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The same crap happens today, too, right? The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, you know what this reminds me of? This is exactly what happens in my house with my daughters. I'm like, Samantha Noel, what in the world happened? Kate said, and I'm like, okay, Kate, what'd you do? Becca made us do it. Because that actually is the ringleader of all of them. Anyway, in case the littlest one's the ringleader of all. Joe's usually going, I just went along with him. It was fun. Anyway, right? So then the Lord said to the woman, what is it you have done? The woman said, the devil made me do it. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, and this is where we start to get the, the, the process going. Cursed are you more than all cattle. More than all cattle? Were they cursed to begin with? It's a challenging thing just to think about. Cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise, your, he sh he shall, uh, bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So you see the, the, the lowering order here, right? So, so that's what happens with the serpent. Verse 16. The woman, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. All of these are helpful for our philosophy. What did he say? He said he's going to multiply pain in childbirth. He did not say I'm going to add pain to childbirth. Pain existed before the fall. Pain's necessary, guys. If you scratch yourself on a thorn and you don't feel it, what's going to happen? You're going to bleed out. You can get infected. Something's going to hurt, right? That'd be one whopping thorn if you bled out. But you get what I'm saying, right? Right? Hey, dang. Anyway, okay. So, so there's, there's significance to pain. Pain is not a problem. As a matter of fact, you have to push it even further with a modern scientific worldview that we are all made up of these uh, neurons and axons and all these things that feel temperature and feel senses and all this other stuff and they fire in our brain and tell us what to do about it. 
If we didn't feel pain before the fall, what we're saying is the central nervous system didn't exist until after the fall. That's just stupid, right? This is a dumb idea. There was pain and there was possibility of wounding, okay? All of that is, all of that is possible. I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Verse 17, then Adam, then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, that's where most men stop. You know what the problem is? I listened to that woman. That's not the problem. She is your feedback loop, whether you like it or not. She is. I'll work the rest of my life proving that theory, but the point that I'm getting at is she is your feedback loop, and the idea here is that he failed in this. Look at what it says. It says, because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you not to. What it is is you listened to her when she said or she gave you something that was contrary to what I said. And she did it because the devil tempted her, fooled her, deceived her. That's what the scripture says, okay? Look at what happens, though. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. Now, if you, and we'll get to this in in a subsequent week. If you believe that God only made us vegetarians, that's a redundant statement. Just weird, okay? And you will eat plants of the field. Thanks, God. You already told me that. Okay. Verse 19. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And look at verse 20. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and we'll talk about what that is. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Uh, Now he might stretch out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat forever. So what, what does God do? Verse 23 through 24. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken sanctified and driven out. Look at verse 24. He drove the man out. This is exactly what Jesus does in turning the tables in the wicked people in the temple, right? He drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed a cherubim and a flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay. So the disorder in relationships begins with a disorder with God. We, we broke that order. Why did we break that order? Because we didn't listen to him. That's how you break the order with God. Do you think that Jesus coming on the cross, dying for your sins, and showing you immense mercy means that now there's a, disper- there's a, uh, there's a doing away with all kinds of commands? No. Grace just simply comes to you and says, I know you made mistakes. I know you sinned. I've come to set it right and to reorder the system. But what you must do now is, with my spirit, obey all that I have commanded you. That's the point of it. Because God is what? A God of order. What we did was we disordered our relationship with God. We didn't listen to him. But look at the relationship that's going on between Adam and Eve and the tree. Here's what happens. Please, please hear me. Here's what happens. Adam is supposed to look at things and say, 
There's its function. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I am not to eat from that. Eve is to be, in some sense, a feedback loop that looks at this. What should Eve have done when the devil said what he said? She should have said, Adam, that's not true, is it? That's not what I remember. Is that true? No, no feedback was given. So what does Eve do? Instead of Adam being her head, who does she make her head? A snake. But Adam doesn't do a dang thing about it. And this is where the great sin comes in. Adam doesn't let God be his head. He replaces, she replaces man with the devil. He replaces God with the devil. This is the unpardonable sin, by the way, guys. This is rejection fully of who God is. Right? I'm not suggesting that Adam has not been pardoned. Right? We learn that much later. But what I am getting at in this is that he has literally said, I'll trust that over you. He didn't eat a fruit and ruin the world. He gave rulership over to the wrong one. Do you see it? Do you see why this creates such hell? I mean, seriously, this story is so stinking beautiful that when you see it, you go, oh, that makes a whole lot of sense. It makes a whole lot of sense of my world, right? It's not just, well, here's my test this time. Don't pick that flower. You did it. Curse the world, right? That's, that's not it, right? That's not it. God is not a gotcha God. He's not waiting to slap you on the wrist. But what he is is a God who says, I must lead. I must rule. And you can rule over the things that I put you over. But the second you replace me as your head, you have a problem. So, Genesis 1 and 2, we have a God of order. And Genesis 3, all of a sudden disorder comes in. And that disorder is extremely intense. That disorder is a reversing of who's in charge. That disorder is a turning upside down God's structure in his kingdom, of which Jesus comes some thousands of years later to turn it right side up. And he puts everything back where it belongs. And he puts everything back where it belongs because who is the head of the church? Christ Jesus. He comes and he redeems. He washes his bride. He cleanses her. He makes us what we're supposed to be. He does what Adam didn't do. Amen. So, in the next few weeks, we're going to push into some of the crazy stories, right? We're going to see that the disorder results in one generation to murder. Like, Lord, how's that possible? You'd think we'd slowly go off this cliff. Nope, and just straight down. We're killing each other. And we're going to see why that matters, because when you destroy the image of God, there's a problem. We're going to look at the Tower of Babel. We're going to look at the flood. We're going to see the extent of the disorder that has been created. But we're going to look at it through lenses that will help you be able to see a story that is not a fairy tale. A story that is not God created two people in a garden. One ate an apple, passed it to her husband. Now we're all dead, right? This is fairy tale, children's church, weird nonsense, okay? And do you know why the skeptical world looks at us and laughs? Because that's what we tell them. Like, yeah, we believe in fairy tales. It's really awesome. We don't. We believe in a story that is so intricate and so detailed and so fascinating that when you discover the connecting pieces, you just sit in awe of who God is. 
As you read this this week, I want to encourage you to reference back some of the things that I've shared with you. And I don't expect you to believe everything I said. I expect you to study and to challenge and to push back and to talk about these things. We had, uh, uh, we had men's breakfast yesterday as the kids are joining us, as Adam comes on up. We, we, had, um, we had men's breakfast yesterday. I, I do want to stop and say this. A month ago at men's breakfast, some of you showed up and I did a poor job of aligning a leader when I was gone from my vacation. And I am sorry that you showed up and no one was there. It will not happen again. So this time we got together and we started talking about things. And we were, we were talking about this, uh, this fascination with, um, we talked about the fascination with Genesis and the questions that, that get presented. And we, we talked about the questions that people are asking or people would ask. And we, we learned and we all kind of came to a similar conclusion that, that when we see the beauty of all of this story, when we see the intricate details of all this story, it becomes so much greater than the fairy tales we felt we, we were raised with, right? We, we, my mom and dad didn't teach me a fairy tale. They just taught me what they had learned, right? What they had uh, understood. And so we talked about the depth of it, and we talked about the need for understanding all this stuff, because in this skeptical, crazy world, we are, um, we're bombarded by people who just think that we're, we're living in a make-believe world, right? And we don't. We live in a fantastic world that God has designed for us. So uh, I encourage you to challenge those things. We did, on, uh, we did on men's breakfast. I want you to challenge. I want you to push back. I want you to tell me things that you think are crazy, things that you think are intriguing. Um, it's awesome. This is how this life should be. Uh, we also talked about the idea that, that other cultures have no problem with these conversations. And Americans are like, don't talk about religion or politics, right? So let's talk about these things because they're fascinating. Amen.